Hello, and welcome to They Made Another One, where each week we study an oft-forgotten installment in a franchise and see how it holds up. I'm one of your hosts, Corey. And I'm your other host, Liam. And this week we are changing up the formula a little bit, kind of like last week when we talked about 1998's Psycho remake. Uh, We're looking at a franchise that Liam and I are both a bit more familiar with, and a sequel that's not necessarily forgotten or lost to the sands of time, really, but... When it comes to this particular series as a whole, it feels to us as though it's the one that people don't really discuss. It's the one that kind of gets left by the wayside. And that film is Back to the Future Part 3. It came out in 1990, directed by Robert Zemeckis and stars Michael J. Fox, Christopher Lloyd, Mary Steenburgen, Thomas F. Wilson, and Leah Thompson. And Liam, before we dive into everything, what is your personal experience with the Back to the Future franchise kind of as a whole? I came to Back to the Future uh, pretty late in life. I didn't really know much about it. You know, I I knew that there was an old guy and that they used a car to travel back in time. But I saw the first one a year or two ago when I was trying to catch up on classic films that, uh, that I hadn't seen. You know, I was watching Spielberg movies at that time as well. And I was surprised watching the first one that this wasn't the one where they go to the future. I thought I was going to see hoverboards and stuff, and I didn't. And I learned that that was the second part, which I then watched soon after because I loved the first one so much. I really, really loved the first Back to the Future movie. I've seen it quite a few times since that first watch a couple of years ago. I've seen it in the theater twice and I've uh, shown it to people because a lot of my friends actually are in a similar boat to me that they just hadn't seen the movie before they didn't grow up with it and it wasn't shown to them as a kid and if that doesn't happen then uh, you don't really get to it you know I I didn't see it played on TV much for some reason and I'm glad it's a part of my life now because I genuinely think that first movie is a perfect film and, and one of the most special films I've ever seen and so I really loved that one and I loved it so much that I then watched two and three shortly after so I have seen the whole franchise oh okay yeah so this is my first time watching the third movie but I'm in a similar position with the first two where I got to them maybe a little bit later than other people I also didn't have a huge um awareness of them like I knew what Back to the Future was, and I knew that like people liked it and it was this classic thing. But like you're saying, it never seemed like it played on TV or people had it and nobody was ever like, hey, we should watch this. I just kind of missed the boat on it for a while. And then one time I was over with some friends and they were all like, oh, hey, we should like watch Back to the Future. Like, does anybody want to do that? Like everybody's seen that, right? And I just like feigned ignorance. And I was like, yeah, totally love that. And um, I want to get bullied. What that turned into, though, was me having to try to hide like my genuine joy and amazement throughout the movie because I needed to act like I had been there before. And um, well, to be fair, it's honestly not that difficult because um, if that movie has shown me anything on rewatch is that it really holds up, you know, especially those big uh, the climax, the clock tower climax. Mm -hmm. And uh, and when Marty's dad punches Biff, it just it feels as crowd pleasing as it does the first time around. So I kind of feel like you could you could get away with pumping your fist and and being sold on it and people not knowing it's your first time, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then I did go and I did watch the second one. And the second one's like, it's super fun. It's a good time. Um, It's it does some stuff that I think is kind of whack, but like generally I have a good time with the second one. And then the third I just never got to because I wasn't especially interested in in the western theme like yeah i that's i think that's a big part of why uh i think that's probably why yeah i think that's the thing that kind of sets it apart because it feels by virtue of being so much further back in time it makes it feel literally removed from 
the other movies, despite, you know, all being shot at the same time and all being connected so directly with like the opening of one movie being the ending of the previous movie and things like that. So it's weird that in like cultural discourse, there is a bit of a disconnect there, it seems like. One thing that I thought was interesting before we dive into discussing what we thought about the actual movie itself, this might just be something for me. I never realized that these movies were all shot by Dean Cundy, which is like a really cool thing. I didn't know that that was, uh, he had shot all three of these movies because he's like a super prominent and well-known cinematographer. Is that a name you're familiar with? No, no. Tell me about him. Uh, so my familiarity with Dean Cundy comes from his work with John Carpenter. He shot Halloween and The Fog and Escape from New York and Halloween 2, The Thing 2, Halloween 3. I know some of those aren't John Carpenter movies. Big Trouble in Little China. Wait, there's a Thing 2? No. I said Halloween 2. Oh, okay. <laughs> he did shoot Psycho 2, which we're going to talk about soon, which I thought was funny. Um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Jurassic Park. Apollo 13, Looney Tunes back in action, clearly the best movie oh, that so he has just filmed. All the, all the best movies. The greatest all hits. Shot them. Jack and yeah. Jill. Hey. The greatest hits. Yeah. <laughs> one of those guys who hit his peak late in life. I love <laughs> yeah, so I just want to give a quick shout out to Dean Cundy, who I think does a good job in most of his movies that I've seen and does a good job here. But before we get too sidetracked with um, Looney Tunes back in action discussion, Liam, what did you think of Back to the Future Part 3? I thought this movie was a blast, man. And um, I'm a bit surprised to say that. That is to say, I liked it less the first time I saw it. I think my biggest distraction from enjoying the movie, because I didn't dislike the movie, I just certainly didn't like it as much as the first one. And I think I was most distracted by the setting because I associate Back to the Future so strongly with suburbia and um, modern Americana, you know, despite the fact that Back to the Future, uh, the first one takes place in the 50s, it's still very um it's quintessential americana it's qu like yeah that, yeah that's a good way to put it yeah it's quintessential and so i think it's clever that this movie goes back in time to an america that that no one alive seeing these movies would really be familiar with but because it's removed from that suburban setting which i love so much i had a bit more of a difficult time you know sinking my teeth into it and then the focus on doc instead of marty pulled me away a bit just because i think they're so good as a team and that team is obviously still here but we do have a focus on doc and his relationship a little bit more and marty is sort of a sidelined and is just bopping around on his own for a little while in the middle there those are still things that keep this movie from being as perfect as that first one is to me but this time around i took it a lot more as just an episode of sort of a series that features these characters that i love so much the movie itself feels a lot less quintessential than the first movie and even the second movie which in my recollection i like less than this movie both times around oh I you don't like the second one no i again i haven't seen it uh for a second time and in my memory i just the the future stuff didn't land for me with biff and how he because it uh, was 2015 when you saw it it was, it was 2015 when I saw it, and also just <laughs> the story. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel um, nearly as tight. And in, in the first movie, using the past is is a vehicle just for telling this super super tight story. Whereas I think the second one, it's full of a lot of predictions and and things that are cool, but it doesn't feel like it's it's wrapped up in a story that's as compelling to me. 
the second one didn't do as much for me. And even watching the third one for a first time, I thought it was more fun than the second one, honestly. It's still more forgettable than that second one because the second one has that stuff that I thought would be in the first movie, these sort of iconic images of the hoverboard and um, a modern day 2015. So this time I really tried to take this story as it is and sort of just enjoy it as this tale that is separate from the other two. And I, th I think that's what it is. I think it is far less essential than the first movie and probably even the second movie. But I think that if you enjoy these characters, um, this is one that is it's a lot of fun i think i think everyone involved is giving a great great performance and i think the filmmaking is just as strong as it is in the second one and the first one i think that in terms of the script they really struck gold with that first one and i don't think that that has been repeated but this still this doesn't feel lazy at all you know sometimes when a third movie comes around stuff feels a bit lazy in the way it's constructed or at least it feels a lot i think a better way to put it is it just feels a lot less considered you know because they're rushing to to capitalize on this property and um it, it doesn't feel that way for this one i feel like the filmmakers are having a lot of fun and they're really trying and that comes across and particularly in the climax of the film which I think is just as riveting and just as fist pumping as the clock tower scene in the first movie and so um, <laughs> despite me not loving the movie as much as I love the first one I think that's totally okay because so few movies I love as much as I love the first one and you know if we had more movies like Back to the Future Part 3 I think the world would be a better place and so i'm not upset at this movie for not reaching the heights of the first one for me because i think it's totally great and I, I would champion it from here on out i'm about to do that thing i do that you find kind of annoying well, uh, the movie's fine yeah yeah it sure <laughs> is <laughs> it sure is a movie it sure is um yeah man i don't know yeah it's fine and i feel like a buzzkill having that takeaway from it um, I think it helps me kind of crystallize what it is that I both love and dislike about Back to the Future as a as a trilogy, as three things. They say good things come in threes, but um, I think the thing that it's really helped me put into focus is if a lot of your series conceit is based on repetition and familiarity and doing things again, but they're slightly different or seeing things again and they're slightly different. At a certain point as a viewer, it might just start to feel boring because you're not just repeating it within one movie and you're not even just repeating it within two, but we've now seen this three times in some cases with some of the things that they're doing. For example, having Doc there and he's got the model set up and they're going over the plan and they're doing the thing or some of the dialogue that repeats or just some of the beats because a lot of the story beats are the same it's the same kind of structure with some descendant of biff is there and they're a dick and they gotta sort out what's up with biff um and i think the biggest issue that i had was that it is super well executed i think that the performances are fun i think the moments are fun i think there's a lot good here i think i just struggled to focus on it because it felt very tired at times where I was like, yeah, we're doing the Back to the Future movie thing again, huh? And I, I can't help but wonder if that's part of the reason this isn't talked about as much is because the setting might be less compelling to a wider audience based on the first two movies anyway. And from there, it's repetitive within itself. I'm not totally sure what you know the answer to that is. I don't think there's an answer for that. But for me, 
it just made the experience feel kind of flat. Yeah, dude, no, that's totally cool. And I, I really felt that way watching this movie in fairly close proximity to the first two as I did that first time around. Mm. You know, it, it felt like it was more of the same, but it was more of the same and they weren't able to quite repeat the first movie because I think that movie is lightning in a bottle. And so, like you said, it felt more tired because they're doing these things that they know are crowd pleasers because it pleased the crowd the first time. Yeah. And so I think that's why I... I would compare this movie to and the second movie as well to just um episodic installments in like a, a series like scooby-doo or something where it's just okay. it's just a formula with characters you like and it's fun to see them again i think that's also why i was able to take it for as what just it a is. fun wrong yeah i haven't seen the second in quite a while and I've, I've seen the first quite recently um i went to see it in a cineplex again just because you know when that movie's on a big screen i want to see it i've seen that movie enough times that I, I i understand that it's its own entity it's this own piece of filmmaking and i don't i don't go to the third movie or the second movie to try to get that experience again and so i enjoyed this movie for what it is absolutely but i think that the first film absolutely stands high above the other two movies and so if, if you're looking for more of that and if you're looking for a perfect trilogy i don't think this is it just because that first film is too perfect but i also don't think that this is a failed trilogy like so many other trilogies are and while I don't think I would be upset if I lived in a timeline where the second and the third film don't exist, I also don't mind that we're in the timeline where they do exist because I think the people who love these characters are getting more of them in the second and third film. And the people who love that first movie, I don't think the first movie is affected by two and three just because I think that first film is so... It's awesome, dude. I... Uh, we should start a Back to the Future cast, cast Corey. <laughs> it's just, it's such an incredible movie. And I think the, these other two are, t are totally good too. But, but I, I, I totally understand what you're saying, man. Yeah, and I don't mean this in like a very dramatic sense, but I almost wouldn't mind if we did live in a world where there wasn't two more. I think it would help sort of really highlight how special that first one is because it hasn't been beaten to death uh by way of its sequels um but that doesn't mean i think that these should all be you know like thrown in the ocean i do want to touch on something that you said earlier which is that this is also more of like a doc brown story than it really is a marty mcfly story and i think that's another knock against it in a sense just because i found myself a lot less invested in what was happening both because they've done this twice before so the stakes felt kind of low because you know every other time they make it out you have a pretty good sense that they're gonna make it out of this jam but also like i just had a harder time attaching myself to like the romantic life of doc brown and never mind the fact that they're only into each other after like a day or whatever so like you don't have a lot of time to really sit with that anyway but it almost feels like a side plot and then marty dealing with biff or buford whatever also feels like a side plot so then you can't get a good sense of what the core driving force actually is it's a movie that keeps up a good pace it feels like things are always happening but it never feels like you're doing the quote-unquote thing this movie is yeah yeah i think that's a great point just because that first movie um the objective is established so concretely and you know exactly what that movie is about again it's it's one of the tightest scripts that i've ever seen to a film 
film. And um, this one, I'm kind of hard pressed to say exactly what the objective is. You know, they they're in the past and then I think they just wanted to do more and like trilogies are tight that's how storytelling works like things in three acts like i get it um i think it's worth noting before i give a quick plot synopsis here for anybody who hasn't seen this film that i guess the wild west setting came up because zemeckis and bob gale who's like a producer and one of the writers uh Mm -hmm. just asked michael j fox like what time period he wanted to see and he was like old west and cowboys and they were like okay Let's uh let's pretend that we're Mike- Michael J. Fox and Bob Gale says, what time period do you want for Back to the Future Part 3? What do you think would have been more A better answer? Yeah. Uh, is this our first hypothetical? I'm surprised it took us this many episodes. I love hypotheticals. <laughs> I think the problem is I don't have a better answer, but... I think that's because the time periods they were already working with were basically the perfect things they could have chosen. Um, and there were just no more. Like Michael J. Fox's answer should have been, eh, you know what, maybe we'll uh, let's, let's just not make that movie. Well, you can't that? do 2045 because that's boring. Like you can't just go further into the future. I don't think that works. Yeah, but especially because, you know, any depiction of the future always comes across as, you know, they're hokey. adding years to, yeah. to what actually ends up transpiring well, so yeah and part of right. it too is that you know they had like 30 year intervals right but there's also a kind of parallel relationship between the 50s and the 80s that feels like they go together like there's a lot of that sort of like suburbia and it was a time of like a lot of people being able to make big purchases and consumerism and being able to live that sort of like white picket fence kind of life. And there's like just social and in some ways aesthetic like parallels that make it so those feel like they go really well together. And then the future is fun because theorizing about the future is fun. But all we get here is like, I believe Roger Ebert in his review characterized it as a sitcom interpretation of the West. Which is true, Mm -hmm. but like I feel like the Western had been so done by that point that us getting it here with these characters doesn't feel like a significant thing. And it feels removed from that parallel relationship that exists, I think, most in the first movie, but you can also kind of feel it in the second. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Um, I think the future in the second movie is also that sort of sitcom depiction i think that's certainly yeah i don't want to act like this is not that they're i think they're the same thing i think the future is just more inherently interesting yeah of course because well because in the first movie you're going back to the 50s and you're right there are all sorts of parallels just in in terms of the way american society was developing there but also the hook of the movie of course is that you're you're seeing your parents when they were your age you know and that's such a strong hook and then good and then seeing going into the future and now seeing your kids, that's also super interesting. Um, but you're right. There's something far less captivating about seeing relatives who are you we're know, seeing are Marty's like two great, great removed grandfather or something like though. Yeah, I will say it's fun seeing two Michael J. Fox is just hanging out and one of them's doing like a weird yeah. Irish accent or Scottish. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know what he was going that, for. So. I guess Irish because Seamus. So it would have to be that, but yeah, I think well, it wouldn't have to be that. There. I'm sure there's a 
if we have a Scottish listener named Seamus, correct me, but I mean, this is what I'm going off of. Um, well, you know what? Maybe that's why he picked the Wild West setting, because he already had this character of Seamus in his head, like it was one that he had workshopped in the bathroom <laughs> mirror, and he's like, okay, this is my chance, the Irishman Seamus. <laughs> this was That was the character he really wanted to play. That was the pinnacle of his career in his eyes. I hope so. so uh, in that case, this movie deserves to exist. Good yeah, job, I, Michael I just J. want to Fox. make Michael J. Fox as happy as possible. Yes. Um. So really quick for anybody who hasn't seen this, Doc Brown is in 1955 and they just got Marty back to the future. And then Marty shows up again from the future because he got a letter from Doc Brown in 1885 saying basically shit's fucked and I'm here now. But, you know, things are going all right. So what we're going to do is I left the DeLorean in a cave and you in 1955 Doc Brown are going to get it. You're going to bring it back to your own time period and destroy it. And that's all fine and dandy until the two of them discover a headstone with Doc Brown's name on it. And he got killed shortly after Marty sent him that letter by Buford Tannen, who is a predecessor to Biff Tannen over like an $80 debt or whatever. And Marty's like, well, I'm fixing that. Time to go back to the past. <laughs> they fit the DeLorean with some cool white wall 1950s tires and they sort everything out. And Marty zooms back to the past to 1885 and he gets in touch with Doc Brown and they're trying to figure out how to get him into safety, timeline safety, while also having to repair the DeLorean and try to get back in time. Meanwhile, Doc Brown gets entangled with a love interest new teacher in the town of Hill Valley named Clara, who is also sort of entwined with keeping the timeline straight because she had careened into a gorge, basically, and they called it like Clayton Ravine, but then Doc Brown saves her from that, so they kind of have to figure that out. Ultimately, everybody kind of gets where they need to be. Marty gets back to 1985. Doc Brown stays there happily with Clara. He then disrupts everything by showing up on a giant lightning shooting flying train inspired by Jules Verne, which is really ridiculous. And also he named his kids Jules and Verne. And also they really like Jules Verne. Liam, did you hear the part about Jules Verne in the movie? <laughs> no, but I'm glad you're stressed. <laughs> and um, this movie is even better than I thought it was. And, um, yeah, so Marty just kind of navigates that a little bit. He comes across some of his own relatives, but they're really bit players in this. And uh, I guess the bit for the crowd, basically, is that he takes on the alias of Clint Eastwood, which is fun. You know, yeah, that's, that's fun. That's yeah. uh, Calvin Klein in the first movie. So this is this is good. I kind of yeah, that's fun. I like yeah, that. I think it's fine. And, um, you know, there's a couple shots, I think, that stuck out to me. One in particular, shout out to my man, Dean Cundy, is uh, when marty and doc are in the library in 1955 researching 1885 it's like this overhead shot with light streaming in through the windows and it just looks really nice but i think from there you just kind of get a lot of the familiar plot beats from the other two films but we're here instead of the future or the 80s you know mm -hmm. so there's really not a ton for us to bother saying in terms of that i don't think i don't think there's any good in like rehashing it point for point here for anybody listening if, if you know how the other movies work you generally know how this works some of the stuff that stuck out to me is you get a lot of you know repetitive dialogue just some of it's just like science jargon but you know like pretty heavy huh and like great scott like you're getting the the killer lines the ones that you know really stand out when you think about the series and um you know you get throwing biff into some manure I learned by watching this movie that a PG-rated movie can get away with saying the word shit three times. 
apparently. Yeah. And not yeah, be yeah. PG-13, uh, which is, I don't know. Now everybody else knows that too. Congratulations. I think one of the things that doesn't work for me here is not just how familiar it is because, you know, the encounter with Biff again boils down to he gets called Yella, which is basically him getting called a chicken. And Marty's whole hubris is nobody can call him chicken. And they fight and he like gets away with that. And then they get the DeLorean and it goes away. And that's, yeah, that's pretty much it. Like it just hits the same beats again. So I kind of understand this not sticking out from the crowd of the other two in the series because it is familiar. And I almost wish that I felt like I had had some kind of epiphany watching it that where something clicked where I sort of understood. But yeah. Well, here's the thing. I think if this movie weren't shot back to back with the second movie, or at least it were released a little bit later, it would be a lot more likely that people talk about this movie. You know, I've heard people say on podcasts and things when they're talking about these movies that if they saw the second movie first, if that's the one that played on TV or the one that they happen to own on home video, that was their back to the future. And that was the one they loved. And I think that people would absolutely feel that way about this movie if this was the first one they saw too just because all those lines are there that you love and um and all the i'm not uh, convinced why not i don't mean to cut you off i'm sorry but um because i think the thing that works so well with the first and to a degree the second is marty navigating like the weird family pickle he's in and trying to get things to line up and trying to make sure that he doesn't like mess with that too much. And there's not really any of that here. I think what people are able to latch onto is I think it's an easier task to get somebody to identify with Marty, not just because like he's the younger one of the duo that we have working here, but something just feels more accessible about that. So I feel like if you got this one and it's just doc may or may not stay with this woman and Marty's got to get back to his own time, but you don't have enough of what sets up why the time travel has been such an ordeal that you would feel kind of hollow when you got to the end and, you know, he sees his better 1985 family because he was able to change some stuff before and he would just be like, okay, that's what that's like. And I feel like there's something lost by not having those other two there that if this is all you had, I don't know if it would play as well. But I think that um, a lot of times kids who, who these movies are for, you know, they're they're not going to care about that stuff all as much. And the stuff that makes this movie memorable for them, I don't know that it's going to be uh, that, you know, denouement and that catharsis at the end of the film. I think it's more likely to be, you know, Doc and Marty. These guys are it's more likely to be like a, ch- a chase or the train sequence where it's like, wow, this is exciting because people are hanging onto the side of a train. Yeah. And, you know, Biff. Yeah. Uh, approaching marty in the saloon and and shooting at him and then and then marty is wearing this armor on the front of him i think all that stuff is memorable and so i think that if this movie hadn't been released back to back with the second one it could be someone's uh someone's memory of back to the future but because that second one deals with the future and has all those those iconic images and like you said has the emphasis on marty which i absolutely think is important and is why this movie doesn't work as well for me i think that the second movie sort of trumps this one especially if they're both you know being played on tv at the same time and being released on home video at the same time i think people are going to catch this one and the third one is going to fall through the cracks a little bit and um 
So I would I would be very curious to hear from people who for some reason or another caught this one before the other two and and have thoughts on it because I think that if you catch this one after the other two it certainly it feels like a conclusion but it also feels a bit deflated whereas if someone were to see this first I think that there's still a lot of good stuff in it that could stick with them and then I would imagine they'd go back and watch the first one and uh, be blown away because that's the best movie of all time. But you know what I mean? Do you actually think that? No, it's up there, man. Like it's yeah. a 10 out of 10 for <laughs> Yo, sure. For sure. I, did, I was curious if you meant that or not. But um, I think the thing that I'm having like trouble reconciling with that is that even if this was somebody's first one, it's so reliant on knowledge of the first two that I just don't know if it would connect in that way. This movie is very much a conclusion though. Like that last eight or so minutes is about, you know, everybody's where they're supposed to be. Doc comes back from the past and they sort of have their moment where they're like, yeah, everything's wrapped up. And Marty is with Jennifer, who for some reason is given nothing to do in these movies. She just kind of gets to sleep on a porch, I guess. You probably could have done something else with that. So... They wrap up their problems with the future by making a different decision in a street race, which I just need to point out is against Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who also has a cameo in the movie we just talked about, which is uh, Psycho from 1998. He's the the attendant in the hardware store. That's weird. That's a weird thing. (laughs) This podcast has been a Flea cast all along. Yeah. That's the twist ending. Every movie we've talked about has Flea in it. We were waiting for someone to figure it out. And if he wasn't in it initially, we cut him into the movie. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think, though, that if there was a different cut of Back to the Future 2 that had that more of a reconciling moment like this one has, you could do away with this one. I recognize that that, that would fuck with the structure of that movie. Like, 2 would have to be a different movie. I haven't seen it lately enough to know 100% why I'm wrong, but I know I'm wrong in some capacity in saying that. But I think that this could work just as well if 2 wrapped it up in the way this does, and you don't risk having as much of the strain from the repetition on your audience kind of being like, okay, we get it. Because I found that even as somebody who, you know, has seen these movies like maybe twice, like I'm not nearly the kind of fan that you are, that there's still a risk of it kind of being like okay what else are we doing here all that said because i've sort of railed that home a little bit already i was curious as the person who is a much bigger back to the future guy what was it about this movie like just give me a sense of some of the sequences that really worked for you let's get some throw some abject uh no that's not the word let's throw some overwhelming positivity into this conversation uh well a big thing is the chemistry between marty and doc you know you get those shots where they they sort of just they stare at each other wide-eyed you know they'll say a line about we need to go back to the future and then they stare at each other and it's stuff that it's it's so um it knows that the audience is going to be smiling along and thinking it's awesome but I, I don't think that's reliant on the fact that it worked in the first movie because I think the first movie also sort of has that bravado and that confidence going in. I have a dis- distinct memory of watching the first movie and for the first 10, 15 minutes or something, I actually wasn't enjoying myself as much as I wanted to because Michael J. Fox is being really theatrical in his naivety. Mm. And um, there are just these things where I can I can sort of tell that they're going for something that is supposed to be iconic. And that yeah. and I think that's just 
how um, like Robert Zemeckis makes movies, and I'll get yeah. into that after. But like, I'll just let you finish because that's a whole other thing. Like, we're gonna have to dig into that. <laughs> okay, yeah, and and that's and that's what I'm learning because for a little while there, like it just it seemed like Michael J. Fox again talking about when I saw the fir- the first movie for the first time. It seemed like Michael J. Fox wasn't uh, really an actual person, and he was he was just this cipher to let these events unfold around him. And I thought that it was kind of I hadn't really seen a movie like that before. Again, there are plenty of classic movies that that people love for reasons such as this that uh, that just have so many iconic moments a lot of spielberg movies are similar and i haven't seen a lot of those movies and so i was watching this movie that i know a lot of people really love and i was seeing the parts that they love and i was thinking this isn't actually how people act this this isn't right but i found you know a few minutes later it all just started to work for me and i started to absolutely buy into it i see a lot of that in this third movie as well you know it's it's a very knowing movie they know that people are loving it you know, for example, when when Marty pulls the DeLorean into the cave, escaping the guys on the horseback, and, and he finds an arrow in the window, and he pulls it out, and he just sort of looks at it with furrowed brows and wide eyes, and he's holding it directly in front of his face, and he just holds there for like two seconds. It's it's just these moments are, they're small, but they're also really big. Yeah, I get and, it. Um, like, they feel memorable, even though they're not like, nobody did anything extreme. But you yeah, still remember yeah. like the look on his face when he did that, and then you know he gets chased by a bear, which maybe makes it a bit of a bigger <laughs> moment. But uh... yeah, and then right after that, he rolls down the hill. You know, I get, I, I yeah. assume it's a stunt person, but it looks super good. Yeah, and you could hear I'd him sort it was of yelping. Him. Yeah, I, I would believe it too, man. He's just yelping as he goes down, and it's just. I started to have a lot of fun right about there, and um, I think losing the setting of suburbia is a big loss, but I also think that the characters are so strong, and I feel that even more when we have the showdown between Biff and Marty in the saloon, because I think that Thomas F. Wilson is just, he's sort of the MVP of this franchise. He's given all sorts of different characters to play. You know, he has to be Biff in high school as a bully, and he also has to be Biff as an old man who's me and serving the McFlies and then he has to be Biff as an old man who is tyrannical and rich and has everything he wants and and now seeing him as um this cowboy who has all these guys behind him and he's doing it really perfectly also, because it, yeah sorry he says the word dude in this movie like three times <laughs> was yeah, yeah, that yeah. fucking cowboy parlance did cowboys say dude I don't. That doesn't I, seem I don't, right. <laughs> I don't think it is, and and I kind of questioned that for a second too. But also, I kind of love that Thomas F. Wilson. He just has this strong presence about him that is sort of goofy in that way. And I kind of feel like he just said "dude" in character, and then the director was just like, "You know what? We'll leave it because we'll that's it. just that's just the kind of guy he is." And so, um, I like that idea, and it's very charming, and um. I thought he was a blast. I think the segments we get with Marty are a lot of fun, even though I would like to see a bit more of him interacting with Doc in particular. Again, my biggest problems with this movie, I think, are Doc and the woman he finds. Even though... Clara, come on. Clara. And the woman (laughs) he finds. Her name is Clara Clayton, and I was about to ask you about how you felt about that addition and sort of like the Doc-Clara relationship being the focus. Because I think the biggest problem is... Like a lot of movies, she feels underwritten as hell. Like, yeah, so... that's, that's why she's the she's the woman he finds. Yeah, don't blame me, blame the movie. Well, cause like, okay, 
So they have like a meet cute where it's life or death, which is a, is a is a decision to make for sure. You know, they like fall in love at first sight and they're having these moments. And, you know, her whole thing is like, oh, she also likes science. And wow, Doc can't believe a woman has read Jules Verne, like one of the most acclaimed fucking authors. Like, wow, really? You can't believe that somebody who is not a man has read Jules Verne? And then that's really all the buildup she gets is like, she feels wronged by Doc because she thinks she's lying with a time machine, sees a model of a time machine, immediately believes that it's true and seeks them out. And other than that is someone who likes science and reads Jules Verne. And that's it. And that's nothing. That's not enough to give your character to make it a compelling character. And that's not enough to give your audience to really be invested because that's not enough of a person. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I think you you articulated it better than I could. I understand why... It's the same problem the, with Jennifer. I want to say that. It's just they don't give them anything to do. They don't yeah, give them yeah, personalities. Same with Jennifer. And I think that um, because we don't get much Jennifer in the first and second movie, you know... She's literally be... knocked unconscious and like thrown in an alley in the second totally, movie. Like totally. there's just nothing. And, and, what the um, fuck? Why? It's unfortunate that they wrote themselves into that corner, but this movie, now that we have a female character who is at the forefront, it makes me think that maybe the first and second movies were better off just because they didn't know what to do with her, so they didn't even try, you know? They just left it to Marty and Doc. And in this movie, uh, I understand... It feels like such a cop-out fucking answer for the, the creative team to have. It's like, oh, we don't know. Totally. Um, but just because they they try it here and it's just, it's not really working. And I can understand why they're trying because this needs to feel like a conclusion and it needs to feel like the characters are getting somewhere we haven't really seen them before. So what better way than to give the adult character something to hold on to? But... um. I've always kind of liked Doc's mystery. We don't know why he's friends with Marty, and I think that's really funny. <laughs> and um, and we just we, we don't we know that he loves science and he's concerned with his time machine. But other than that, I don't really want him to have anything else, which you know feels super sad and in contrary the, in to the what the structure and setup of the of the series. Though, like he is very much like plot moving support guy. Like, that's what Doc yeah. is. So to give us a third movie in an unfamiliar setting and give him, like, the emotional push of the movie yeah. feels weird, doubly so when you don't give Clara anything either. So there's not much there. And again, it could be argued that, you know, maybe we're digging a little too deep into Back to the Future 3 in terms of, like, what the movie's goals are and who its audience might be. But, like, I don't think that can let them escape the criticism of that being flimsy at best. Yeah, and I really like the description of Doc as plot-moving support guy. I really love that. I think that that kind of nails down why I love him. And I think his so performance is great movie. in that, but that's what he's there for. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. And um, that brings to mind a memory from the first Back to the Future, which I think totally exemplifies the relationship I love between Marty and Doc, and it also exemplifies exactly what you're saying, uh, plot-moving supporting guy. It's when Marty is back at Doc's house. Are we going mother... back to the future right now as a podcast? Is this us doing that? Or is this... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Marty is at Doc's house, 
and his mother has followed him home after a day at school because you know she she has a mad crush on him and she she comes to the door and she says marty i followed you she's being super flirty and overt in her interest in him and it's so uh, much <laughs> it's, it's so much and and doc he kind of he smiles at her and as she walks by him and he's now out of her view he looks at marty and his eyes are just so wide he realizes the situation <laughs> yeah. of what's happening and he holds the face for just a quick second and then he goes back and that might be my favorite moment in Man, the whole movie they and have I a think really it, good dynamic together totally 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 and i think i think that's it's just perfect that he is absolutely just a supporting guy who's there to help marty on his quest and i do think it's unfortunate that this movie tries to do a bit more and doesn't succeed in that way for me just because it would be nice if you know throughout the whole trilogy we don't get the same thing and the dynamic is expanded and we're able to buy into doc as his own main character but it just it doesn't work here for me yeah and you know i think that that might be a good segue into talking about sort of robert zemeckis in general as a director because i kind of went and i looked at like the movies he's directed and i'm gonna preface this with there's a couple movies in here that i might like that i just haven't seen um i'm willing to bet i'd probably like contact and i'll admit that i haven't seen who framed roger rabbit but there's a lot about what he does like as a director that I think is at its best in the Back to the Future movies, which is that sort of like what you were talking about with Marty, where it's like it's very emotionally heightened, but still kind of like schmaltzy and corny, but it's effective just because they've crafted it into that, you know, like silly suburban setting in this like time travel thing. But um, I feel like everything else he does, I just I just hate and I can't help well, but wonder like some titles. Let's go through Forrest Gump. Bad. <laughs> Um, that Forrest movie Gump, fucking know, I, sucks. I'll say it. I know the here. <laughs> I know the book has a sequel. There's no sequel to the film. No, is Forrest Gump a book? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. I'm I'm just looking for an excuse to talk about that on the podcast because I would love to explore it because it's a movie that um <sighs> I saw as a kid and I liked it just fine. But I've I've heard from plenty of people now that the movie is awful. I know Have that's you? Not a unique. Yeah, Where that's are not those a people? Opinion for you to. Oh my there's god! A guy, I don't know anybody Chris. else who doesn't like that movie. There's there's a guy on a, a great podcast called mad about movies his name is brian gill i think forrest gump is maybe his first or second worst movie of all time he absolutely abhors it and so uh and i don't think the rest of the guys on the podcast are particular fans either but but he he really detests it and so it is um something that's put into my been put into my mind recently that forrest gump isn't a great film and I'd have to check it out again. I don't know. Yeah, well, I feel like Zemeckis's reputation is sort of very emotionally shallow, but like very big emotions done in a way that kind of starts to feel schmaltzy. I remember hearing things about that. That's just like they're handled in a strange way and things like Welcome to Marwin. But I can't help but wonder, like, is part of it here where it's that like he's trying to do that with the romance and he's really trying to lay on the romance and then that doesn't work so it falls flat or does it not work because he's doing the same like suburban setting emotional schmaltzy funny thing but that's not where we are anymore so it doesn't make as much sense like i'm not sure if that's who i want to point blame at for like just cranking up the robert zemeckis of this robert zemeckis movie that could be it maybe i'm totally grasping at straws here but um that's the only thing i can think of where that might be a route for what doesn't 
work it could just be like how third time around they're handling that but i also recognize that that's also where the best parts of the dynamic between marty and doc would be coming from is like how they're directed as much as their performances so i don't really know i just wanted to talk about him a bit because i know that he has a bit of a reputation and i don't like his most prominent movie so i couldn't help but wonder if like i'm being colored by that a little bit maybe yeah dude it's it's totally possible he is a guy you hear about a lot because he's still kind of swinging for the fences and putting out big movies but a lot of them really aren't uh landing welcome to marwin is certainly the most recent example like does anyone remember the walk wait whoa is that the joseph gordon levitt movie oh i don't know yeah but he did a back to the future short film in 2015 produced by the same people what? Well, that was the anniversary, so that might have been a web thing. Like that—that that was the year they appeared on Jimmy Kimmel and reprised oh, their okay. characters. Doc Brown saves so the world in a 2015 direct-to-video short film, featured on the Blu-ray release of the trilogy for the 30th anniversary. Oh wait, it is about going to 2045. Fuck off! Fuck off! Oh my God, they did go to 2045. Right, but not at that time, you know. <laughs> Nowadays, you can go to 2045 because we're in 2015. And 2075? So Did they do that? And 2032. That movie Ghost Places sounds like. <laughs> Holy moly. Wow. We do need to do a Back to the Future cast. cast. There's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, we definitely could. Um, Is that all we... Is that, is that it? Are we done with Back to the Future Part 3? Like, I don't know what else we can dig into here because this isn't to say that like i don't have things that i thought were good like moments that i thought worked because i think a lot of what you said is stuff that also worked for me but i feel like it was a very sort of quiet screening for me like you know the movie was on and i watched it and then the movie was over and i was like okay back to the future three there it is and i don't really know what else to do with that i i don't think that's bad at all i would tell people to watch it i think it's worth your time if you got two hours you're like back to the future hell yeah watch it it's a back to the future movie but um i don't know if it's anything more than that and i think the strongest thing about the original for sure is that it does feel like it's more than that yeah no i'm, I'm totally with you that was my biggest takeaway from the movie it's amazing that we have the first back to the future movie because that movie is perfect and um it's really cool to see a movie like part three because it's still absolutely watchable and there's a lot of really good stuff in it you know many movies are of the same quality as back to the future part three but many movies aren't many movies don't even reach that and so i think that part three is is totally fun and it's cool that we have it but uh basically nothing is like the first back to the future movie so there, there is a sort of hierarchy going on here and i think part three is worth your time but it can't be denied that the first movie is uh is worth your livelihood i would give my soul for back to the future it's got a really good poster drew struzan dude does great posters indiana Jones. yeah yeah all like, three are yeah. great that's the, those are the kind of posters i love in a trilogy you know when when they all feel related in that way i think that's brilliant Wow, they've saved the best trip for last, but this time they may have gone too far. That's a bold slogan. Yeah, the but like it's, it's also it's also absolutely understandable. You know what else are you gonna say? It's like when Stephen King came out with Maximum Overdrive, and he was like, "If you want something done right, you have to do it yourself." Yeah, but like, that movie is also a movie called Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> It's just the hook is obvious and so you've got to use it. You know, this is the last movie in the Back to the Future trilogy, so so we got to say that uh that it's awesome, they, put, they have Clara on the poster. 
<laughs> and Doc is on the first one, whereas Marty is just on the second one. So I think I think all that stuff is really cool. You it can make a, like you a can make a flip book out of those. You can make the shortest, lamest, saddest flip book with one of those. I wonder if there was an accompanying poster for the uh, oh, the dude. short film that came out a few years ago. I, that would be awesome. I don't know. I also think it's it's really cool how um, Christopher Lloyd has just always existed as an old man in my mind, and now uh. he has that point where he just looks like doc yeah. but like i feel like he's been an old man forever like when i when i first heard about these movies um i looked up christopher lloyd and i was expecting him to have died in like 1995 because i thought he was an old man i'm getting a lot of just like youtube thumbnails basically i don't think they bother doing a poster and that's kind of a shame also here i do have a picture of jimmy from jimmy Kimmel of them in their outfits michael j fox is looking pretty good he does. He looks great. He's aged really, yeah. really well. And he's, like he's, he's in, still, he's in uh, the Marty outfit with the vest. Now I'm like, this looks pretty good. Like he could probably pull that still if he wanted. Yeah, and he's he's still so much fun to watch. Um, he has some bit parts on Curb Your Enthusiasm where he plays himself, and uh, he's just a hilarious guy. He's totally lovable, and you know I realized that 15, 20 minutes into the first Back to the Future movie, I think he's the biggest reason why those why those movies work so well. You know, the, the, there's a famous story about. Uh, the first movie having to be recast because they shot for weeks with another actor in the role and then um, they just realized it wasn't working and so they spent all this money bringing uh, Michael J. Fox in and reshooting and I think it's absolutely worth it because uh, that man is a heaven sent. Yeah, so if you take anything away from our discussion here, it's that Michael J. Fox rules. And uh, with that, I would like to thank you all once again for listening to another episode of They Made Another One. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another, all one word, on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all kinds of other podcast services as They Made Another One. You can reach us via email at theymadeanotheronepod at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and your favorite anecdote about Michael J. Fox. Uh, we will do our best to respond to everyone who reaches out. Liam, where can people find you? You guys can find my film writing alter ego, Graham the Haunted Marshmallow, on Twitter and Letterboxd. The tag is Graham the Mallow. And you can find me on Twitter for now at Mr. Corey Price. And with that, we'll catch you next week here for more They Made Another One. And Halloween 2, The Thing 2. Wait, there's a thing too? No. I said Halloween 2. Oh, okay.